Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. So on this uh, Wednesday, the 8th of January, I know there's just so much sober news uh, for us to consider. If you missed my uh, my commentary at the opening of the first hour, uh, I talked about how we can talk with our kids, how we must talk with our kids um, when the headline news of the day is so horrible. So if your kids just, you know, were listening to that news related to Iranian missiles being fired at U.S. installations in Iraq, or maybe they heard the news of the horrific plane crash just after the plane took off in Tehran, Iran, um, killing all on board. You know, if your kids are hearing these headline news, um, just like you and me, you know, the the acid rises in your stomach, right? And it uh, and and you get that taste of silver in the back of your mouth. There's a reason for that, and that's because our anxiety and fear. Um, rises within us. And so um, it's an important day to talk with your kids, to have real conversations with your kids um, about the headline news of the day, obviously at an age-appropriate level. But if you're not talking about it with them, then that fear and anxiety is going to take root and it is going to grow and it is going to be fed by the other news that they hear in other places and commentary that they hear by others. And so um, if you go to reconnectwithcarmen.com today, um, I have posted there just some thoughts on how to talk with your kids when the headline news is so horrible. And so um, specifically, you know, when I wrote that um, earlier this morning, I was I was thinking specifically about the news related to the missiles um, that Iran has been fire, firing into Iraq. But now the plane crash, I would simply add to that, add, add that into the mix, add the saber rattling that you hear in the news um, to the mix in terms of of those conversations. So um, go to reconnectwithcarmen.com. My thoughts are posted there. You can listen to the commentary uh, on the podcast, which will be posted a little bit later, which I offered at the start of the first hour this morning. Um, one other headline news item today um, of interest, CNN has agreed uh, to settle a lawsuit that was brought by a high school student, Covington High School, uh, Covington Catholic High School student, Nicholas Sandman. You will remember him um, from last year's March for Life. It took place at the end of January in 2019. During the March for Life, uh, he was on a school trip with other students from Covington Catholic High School in Kentucky. Um, and they were uh, departing the event. And as they were walking, they encountered uh, another group of people who were there demonstrating on something else, not a pro-life demonstration. And the way the media not only captured the footage, but then characterized what was happening um, was it was absolutely not true. It was fallacious. It was uh, defamatory. CNN has now very mu- very publicly acknowledged that by settling this lawsuit. Now, the Sandman lawsuit sought $275 million from CNN. Um, the details of the settlement are not public, but I think that in the lead up to this year's March for Life, which is January the 24th, and Sanctity of Life Sunday, which is January the 19th, this is an interesting conversation to have about um, how we carry ourselves in public and how we 
stop ourselves from assuming that what we're seeing that's captured in a few seconds of video and then characterized by um, by the media as something that it is not, that we need to be, you know, we need to be slow. We need to be slower to assume that what we're seeing is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So I just thought that I would lift that up this morning. CNN has settled that lawsuit. There are still lawsuits pending by Sandman against uh, NBC, Washington Post, a number of other news outlets. All right. uh, Financial planning when dealing with a financial windfall might be one interesting conversation. We're actually going to have the opposite of that conversation with uh, with Bill English this morning. He and I are going to look at the financial ruin of the Roman Empire, the financial crisis of AD 33, and, you know, what we might learn from it. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Bill English from BibleandBusiness.com. Welcome back. Hey, thanks. Good to be back. How are you doing? I'm well. I'm well. Thank you. Amidst um, all, so, of, all the stuff that's going on, we're doing good, oh, aren't man, we? Oh, man. You know, Christmas just ended here yesterday, so the last <clears throat> uh, the last guest, the last house guest just left yesterday, and kids went back to school yesterday. Okay. So um, other than I still need to put Christmas back in the attic where, you know, for most of the year it belongs. Sure. Uh, other than that, I'm I'm really feeling like I'm... Hey, I'm into the new year. Or we're hitting our stride. Um, yeah, you know, there's news headlines every day that are disturbing, and there are news headlines every day that are edifying and encouraging. Um, and around the world, there are signs of revival in, uh, you know, in so many places. And so um, I take it as it comes. Well, and that's your prediction. That's your prediction for 2020, right? Revival. Revival. Yeah, revival. Absolutely. Right. absolutely. So I'm, I'm with you on that. So. I love that. Okay, so um, one place where uh, revival, spiritual revival, took place, but um, but the institutional reality uh, of a political system was already in in sort of its death throes. And so I'm I'm talking about the year AD thirty. In this case, the the year AD thirty three. So we're talking about basically the year Jesus was crucified. Yes. And um, and we know that the Romans were in power at the time, and um, and that the place where Jesus lived, which was Israel, and then specifically Jerusalem, um, in terms of the the hot events of Holy Week, um, this is a place where Romans rule, but Romans govern in no small measure through um, a network of people who are um, subservient to them, aligned to them. It's an it's an interesting mix of um, of, of governance, but. Rome was in a financial crisis, the Roman Empire. So talk with us a little bit about what was going on in what we call the first century. But for Rome, um, you know, it was it was the question of whether or not they were going to survive. Sure. So Tiberius is the king at the time. He has self-exiled himself away from Rome on the island of Capri. Okay, he's not really a politician. He's just not built for that kind of thing, and yet he finds himself as king. So uh, certain historians describe him as having mailing it in, you know, mail in his his, uh, decisions and his leadership, which really doesn't work. Uh, Because of his absence, the Senate is aimless, the Senate is headless, it's acting in a confused and a coherent way. And there are government jobs available to these senators that if they can get the king's approval that they can get into more higher paying jobs and more prestigious jobs 
other than being in the Senate. And so what they do is they start to fight amongst themselves. Uh, And as part of their quest to get to the top, a few of these senators look way back in the archives of the laws and they find laws that are 100 years old, which were still legal and still on the books. And the law stipulated two things. Number one, that you couldn't lend at interest to another Roman. And number two, that their land portfolios had to be heavily weighted uh, with land that was in Italy. So for those, uh, so, so the senators started to take each other to court based on these two laws in the hopes of bringing down their opponent so that they could elevate themselves and get some of these better and more prestigious jobs. As a result of the sudden enforcement of these two laws, which had not been enforced for decades, Rome found themselves on the brink of a financial panic in A.D. 33. So that kind of sets up our our conversation this morning. Okay. So, first, when we talk about the Roman Senate, um, you know, I think when we use the word Senate, people, you know, immediately they just imagine that we're talking about the Senate of the United States of America. So let me just be clear here. Uh, Bill English and I are talking about Rome. We're talking about the Roman Empire. We're talking about Tiberius Caesar. We're talking about the Senate uh, in Rome and the way that the politicians of that day used the laws of the day to take one another to court in a very partisan manner, um, seeking to obliterate their opponents. And what they did instead was actually uh, take their not only their nation, but their empire to the brink of financial ruin. Correct. And there was a... Yeah, go yeah. Ahead. Talk about the, well. Talk about the domino effect because you know there's uh, things have consequences. Ideas have consequences. Actions have consequences. <laughs> Taking people to court has consequences, yes, not just does. financial but <laughs> relational. So talk about the domino effect here. Well, first the banks uh, because they found out that they couldn't be lending uh, and g- getting interest on it, they uh, foreclosed on all their loans immediately and demanded that they be paid back immediately because they needed to become in compliant with the law, and they have been charging interest. So they wanted to foreclose on the loans, get those loans off the books that were violating the law. And that was the only way that they knew to stay in compliance with those very old laws. Secondly, the people who owed the banks the money had invested the money that they had borrowed from the banks. They had invested it in land. So in order to pay back the banks, they had to sell the land. And so you got all these people suddenly throwing the land onto the market at the same time. The land devalues. Uh, They get less money than what they normally would have received. They give it back to the bank, but they themselves become ruined because in most of those cases, they were not able to pay back the entire loan because the value of the land had dropped so much by the time that they were able to sell it. Uh, Thirdly, rich people had loaned money to the banks. So, you know, banks just don't exist in a vacuum back then. Uh, They had to have funding from um, uh, rich people. The rich people who loaned the money to the banks now needed the banks to pay them back because they also couldn't be loaning at an interest rate. And so um, they... um, the banks essentially uh, were able to get those rich folks paid back, but not entirely. And that was where Tiberius stepped in because he had to bail out the rich in order for this whole thing not to collapse. There, there, was, right. there was a huge domino effect here. <laughs> of course, now in the midst of this, you know, Jesus is a problematic figure for the Romans um, in this tiny little protectorate called Israel um, on the, you know, on the Mediterranean. But the whole Roman Empire back in Rome is really dealing with this financial crisis that's brought on 
um, you know, frankly, by greed and political ambition. Uh, Bill English and I are going to return to this conversation. We're going to talk. We might just we might speculate a little bit on uh, on the implications and the applications of what we might learn uh, here today from this lesson from AD 33 in Rome. We'll be right back. All right, I'm talking with Bill English about the near collapse uh, of the financial system in Rome in AD 33. And we're talking about it, um, well, because, frankly, our producer, Paul Perot, uh, has has a wide variety of interests, and this caught his attention. And so, well, I just so Bill, shared it thinking, you know, do throw we, that out there, man. How do we yeah, throw it out there? Yeah. <laughs> and you guys wait room, but that's the thing. <laughs> we, we, you have a great deal of power over us, Paul. So... So Bill English and I are very obediently taking up a subject matter <laughs> yes, area this morning that um, that we find fascinating. It's yes, fascinating, and it, it has is. lots of it has lots of applications for today. Um, I, I here's a few things that just off top of mind, um, Bill, and I know you've sure. got some top of mind things as well. Sure. Uh, here here are some things that I learned. Like okay, when we talk today, when there's conversations in our culture today about capitalism, or there's conversations in our culture today about private property ownership, or about mortgages or about lending rates, or about the bond market, um, or about the way that um, uh, that banks relate to one another, or how banks get their, how banks are funded and how they get their money. Um, and when we talk about the, the desire, at least, in our culture to have some separation between those who are in politics and making political decisions and those who are really running and operating the financial markets, um, why a wall of separation there is important. Um, Conversations about the courts and taking one another to court come to mind in the midst of all of this, Um, as does the concept of a government bailout. Like that comes into this conversation as well. So those were some things that emerged to me. What what were some of your top of mind reactions um, and responses to this well, I'm going to call it a story to this headline breaking news story in AD 33. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, by the way, your off air comment about unintended consequences of laws is well taken because uh, I think when these laws were passed uh, 100 years ago from AD 33, so I don't know, BC 77, whatever it was, 67, um, I'm sure that they didn't think that these kinds of things would happen. What came to my mind is that a sudden, and, and these are really pretty straightforward out of Economics 101, a sudden infusion of too much of a good or a service in the market will drive down the price for that good or service. So when the people have to go out and sell the land right away in order to pay back the banks, um, you you flood the market with land that is for sale, that's going to drop the prices of land. Uh, And by extension, when a government subsidizes an economic activity, they drive down the price artificially of that activity, okay? I I could create demand for milkshakes, if I was in the government, just by, just by simply saying uh, everybody gets a free milkshake at Dairy Queen uh, today uh, across the nation. Sign me up. And you <laughs> and you. Would. He's on the ice cream diet, by yeah. the way. He's oh, is he? That. Yeah. Whole it's milk not or a skim thing. milk? It's not a thing. No, it's not a thing. Skim right. milk. Skim no, 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 no. All right. My, I'm going to get my free All milkshake right. at Dairy Queen, and that is going to make me think that there's a high demand for ice yes, cream and dairy yes, queen. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. okay, secondly, when the government infuses money into an economy from keeping it uh, from collapsing, it's usually the wealthy who get bailed out. I, I think if you look at just about every bailout we've had in the last 50 or 100 years, it's the wealthy who have benefited most from the bailouts. 
and and they're always positioned as bailouts of the middle class or for the poor. But really, it's the wealthy that get bailed out because we need the wealthy to create jobs and create new businesses and really be the linchpin for the economy. Um, let's see, a third one. Uh, when laws are passed which defy economic laws, the enforcement of these laws will have negative effects. Um, it's not right for people to borrow money and not pay interest on that money. And so if you uh, disallow interest on money that is borrowed, you're going to just uh, – credit's just going to go away. There, there isn't going to be much credit there. And quite frankly, the other thing that came to my mind, without the rich investing their money, job creation is severely limited. And those are some of the things I took away from this story this morning. Yeah, and so we'd have to read a little more deeply into um, into history to see what was happening not only at this elite level of society uh, among the wealthy, the senators and um, and the bankers of the day, um, but when you look at the negative impact, the the downstream effects of this on what we would call the middle class, but but certainly the working poor and the poor, the genuinely poor in the Roman Empire. Um, it is devastating. Oh, it is. It's just utterly devastating. And so, um, you know, uh, let me just say, when you hear Bill English say that, hey, it's not okay to borrow money and not pay interest on it, he and I would also be quick to condemn these schemes where people are expected to pay back exorbitant um, levels of interest that is, uh, you know, that's multiplied um, again and again on top of itself, and that 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 interest is crushing people and pressing them deeper not only into debt but into despair and desperation and yeah, so hundred um, you know and so I think that when we talk about um, when we talk about lending and when we talk about assets and when we talk about wealth and we talk about job creation and we talk about um, employing others. We need to be mindful that we are all in this together at some level. Like, right, this, the, these yeah. other people are yeah. image bearers of the living God. And um, there are some ways in which I need to live more simply that other people may simply live. Um, but there are also uh, the realities of a market economy um, where if people are doing well financially, they also have the opportunity to do good. Yes. And so, for others. Yes. And so I think those are all conversations that as a Christian, I would want to somehow weave into my contemporary conversation, even about something that is so um, historically seemingly irrelevant. And let me just clarify uh, my, my comment about not paying interest or it, it's wrong to not be able to charge interest. I'm talking about in a commercial context there. If family members want to loan money to other family members at no interest, I have no problem with that. And I, I Mom, just, are I, you listening to that? Oh, just check. <laughs> yeah, Paul, Paul sitting over just here nodding his head yes. So look, I, but but in a, in a business-oriented context for the government to come in and say, as a business, you can't charge interest on money you lend, uh, then why would I lend it in the first place? Because that's, exactly that's right. how banks make money. Banks make money by lending money. And if they don't. Right, yeah, people don't know that. Yeah. We should talk about sometime we should just have like some really basic conversations about how do those people make money? How do financial planners make money? How do banks make money? How do insurance agents make money? I have lots of questions. Do you really? Yeah. I mean, I know how the dairy farmer makes money because that's a product that I sort of like understand. Um, but I don't understand when we're talking about. Ooh, we also have a, a, a question from a listener about cryptocurrency. Sure. So Crypto. when you come back next time, can we talk? We can't talk about it today. We're out of time. But. <laughs> This would be the list of questions Carmen has on her mind in 2020 for Bill English. Okay. All right. We'll, we'll, we'll get to him. <laughs> All right. Thanks, All right. man. Hey, thanks right. for today. You bet. All take right. Care. We, we got to take a break. We'll be right back. 
So we just talked with the editor-in-chief of World Magazine, Marvin Olasky, uh, about his new book, Reforming Journalism. If you missed that conversation, you can go to MyFaithRadio.com. You can get the podcast. You either go to the Mornings with Carmen page and uh, and look for one of our archived shows, or you just click on podcast and scroll down the list. Uh, you'll find the Mornings with Carmen podcast and you can look there. I'm thinking that that was on Friday, Paul. I think that that was just on Friday. It so was that Friday, would be, yep. Second know, hour. Was that, the, was, was that the 3rd of January? Something yep. like that. Yep. So Friday, January 3rd, second hour, Marvin Olasky, editor-in-chief of World Magazine, who, uh, yeah, yeah, they're great friends of ours, and it's a great publication, and you should check it out. Um, I think it was a great conversation with Marvin Olasky, so grab the podcast at MyFaithRadio.com. Hey, next up, Robin Dance, author of For All Who Wander. This is a, um, wow, this is a conversation about faith and doubt and not not how we get lost sometimes, but certainly how we wander and how some are prone to wander and what it looks like to um, to wander back to God in the midst of all of that. That conversation up next with Robin Dance. So if you uh, listen to Mornings with Carmen regularly, then you know that uh, when I ask where in the Word are you, I am then going to share with you where in the Word I am today. I am in Acts chapter 8. It's the eighth day of the new year, and I am reading a chapter of the book of Acts each day. So today is Acts chapter 8, um, and it leads off with this growing persecution that broke out against the church in Jerusalem. Um, people scattered uh, and um we have the burial of Stephen, the first martyr for the faith. And then we have this testimony about a guy named Saul. Now, you and I, um, we know what Saul's story turns into. We know that he becomes uh, Paul, the great apostle. But at this point, Saul is a guy who is set on destroying the church, going from house to house, dragging off men and women, putting them in prison, um, and we have the story here in Acts chapter 8 um, uh, of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch as well, and how he opens the word of God to this seeker, um, starting in the place in Isaiah where this Ethiopian eunuch is already engaged with the word of God, already seeking. And so I just think there's a lot in Acts chapter 8 for us today in uh, in our application of Scripture to life. If you need a copy of the Bible, we are always giving one away. Um, right now, we are giving away Charles Spurgeon's Study Bible. And so if you would like to enter to win a copy of the Charles Spurgeon's Study Bible, just go to MyFaithRadio.com and enter to win. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. This is Max Lucado. God loves all people groups and equips us to be his voice. He teaches us the vocabulary of distant lands, the dialect of the discouraged neighbor, the vernacular of the lonely heart, and the idiom of the young student. God outfits his followers to cross cultures and touch hearts. Pentecost makes this promise. If you are in Christ, God's Spirit will speak through you. Let God unshell you. Galatians 6 and verse 4 says, Make a careful exploration of who you are and the work you have been given. Then sink yourself into that. Discover your language. With whom do you feel the most fluent? For whom do you feel most compassion? Amazing what happens 
when we get out of our shells. This is Max Lucado. Joining me now is Robin Dance, uh, and she is here to talk about her new book and the accompanying uh, journal. Uh, the book is For All Who Wander, and then there is also the For All Who Wander Journey Guide. Robin, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Good morning. It's so great to be with y'all today. Thank you for having me. Well, it's wonderful um, to have you join us, and we are um, we're talking today about a prayer that I think many of us have prayed at different points along the way, and yet as Christians, we don't often talk about this, this sort of reality um, of doubt and times of wandering um, in, in our own lives. And so when I simply speak the prayer, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, um, talk about how that resonates with you. That is a a passage of Scripture that gives me so much hope because I'm right there praying it alongside um, Scripture. It is an acknowledgement of the truth of our hearts. It's getting honest before God. It is confessing what He already knows about us and then asking Him and inviting Him to fix what ails us, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And so— I feel like what you're addressing in For All Who Wander, in sharing your own story, um, you're just addressing the unspoken reality that many, many people walk in, which is that we believe, but there are some times that we really need God to help us in those areas of unbelief. So if you'll um, if you'll just share briefly about your own story, which you share in, in this book, I think that would be a good starting point. Well, I am a person who grew up in the church. And so my earliest memories are within the church walls, um, and I have a fun story about that in the book. Um, It literally is my first memory in life. But I grew up in that culture, and so I don't ever remember not identifying as a Christian. And so you learn how to speak the language. You learn all the right answers. You learn how to behave and do and serve and what's expected of you without even realize without even realizing that you have learned it. It's just the way life is. Um, I, I realize some people come to faith later in life, but for me, it's all I've ever known. And so you go about um, service, you go about life and faith, and then what happens one day when you start falling away from that? And I think it's the sort of thing, or at least for me, it was not an overnight thing. There's so many factors that go into uh, the way we can wander, the way we can um, find ourselves in the middle of a spiritual desert. It's not one thing that is a catalyst. It is all the things in life and faith that are wearing you down. For me, it was um, a lot of different directions. So it was um, forgetting really whose I was in light of who God says I am. It was a pursuit of worldly things. I think there were definite pain points in my life. And when you are hurting, what happens? You take your eyes off Christ. And so when that, once that happens, there, you're 
open. You're just open to fall. You're open to wander. You're you're open to you're you're letting the enemy of your heart in in such subtle ways. And so it, it looked like a particular set of circumstances for me. And I think um, for the churched people, it's, it can look very different. There, there are things going on in your listeners' lives that might be twisting them in a direction that's going to take them into this kind of wander. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I do want to distinguish, um, and you do this so beautifully, so I'd love for you to distinguish between wandering as a person of faith and being a person who is lost. That is such a great uh, point to want to draw out. So thank you for for, um, noting that. When you are this person who is struggling with doubt, you carry, I carried a lot of guilt and a lot of shame with that. Also with that, you begin to question your own salvation. And I think that is a great, great ruse of the enemy is to make us question our salvation. But if there is a point in time at which you has confessed Jesus as Lord, if you've invited him into your life, if you acknowledged your sin, if you've repented and turned towards Christ, there's no doubt you're saved. You don't have to question that. But the wanderer will. She feels very lost. She is so, or he is so disoriented because what they've always known known to be true is now in question. It doesn't mean that it's not still true, but for the wanderer, you do want, you wonder, right? And so in this feeling lost, it is a sense of um, losing your way in the faith. It's not a matter of salvation. And so I think um, the effective tool of my enemy was that he tried to make me question my actual salvation when what was going on was I was just struggling with very legitimate questions in my faith based on um, what I had learned in scripture, what was going on in my life based on what I was seeing going on in the church. And I kind of um, connected the two when they aren't at all connected. It's important for people who are wandering, for people who are questioning, questioning to understand that it doesn't necessarily mean that you aren't saved or that you are never saved. It just means that right now in this season, you your faith is being sifted. You are being refined. You are being tested. All those things. It's not a matter of a loss of salvation. That's impossible. So I'm talking with Robin Dance. She is the author of For All Who Wander. The subhead is why knowing God is better than knowing it all. I'm going to ask about that just after the break. He's making Continuing my conversation with Robin Dance. Uh, her book is For All Who Wander. The subtitle is Why Knowing God is Better Than Knowing It All. Robin, I'd love for you to tell us why. Why is knowing God better than knowing it all? There's a huge difference between a head knowledge of God, what we know about Him, and experiencing Him, allowing Him to reign and rule in our lives. And, um, you know, you say that you can lose the gospel between that 18 inches between the head and the heart. And I knew all the right answers. When you fall, listen, we're in a performance-based culture, aren't we? And that can trickle into the church so easily, so subtly. And you can be doing good things for the kingdom. You can be doing 
all the right things outwardly, right? We're talking about that inner change, that transformation, that renewing of the mind that is the thing that draws you into relationship with God. And so it's critical. It is such a subtle thing knowing about someone. Think about it. We know, most of us know about Billy Graham, but I didn't have the chance to know him relationally um, within the context of friendship and spending time with him. And so for the person who is wandering, you can, you, you, you can just spend so much time learn, going to Bible study, checking all the boxes, um, attending worship on a Sunday morning, even actively serving. You can present with all these things, and yet they may not have penetrated the heart. And so that is what God wants from us. He wants our hearts. So, Robin, I, um, I'm a person who's been walking fairly consistently by faith since I— uh, gave all of myself who I understood at the time to all of Christ that I understood at the time. And I was a teenager. Um, but I am in community. I am in Christian fellowship um, with women who are wandering. I I love them. I want to um, invite them into um, the reality of, of a life of faith, not just um, the 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 sort of Instagram picture of it. Um, mm. How do I, how do I speak to reach into, I mean, beyond sharing your book, which I intend to do, how do mm. I woo the wanderer? Um, just listening to you, and this is crazy for me. I'm not a crier, but this is the sort of thing that moves me because I understand it. And I didn't allow for anyone to be in my life during this time. And so that you know that these women are struggling and that you have opportunity to impact them is such a place of privilege. It is a holy opportunity for you. So I'm really glad that you're asking that particular question. And what I would say to you, um, there are just three thoughts that quickly come to mind among a thousand I could probably give you if we had the time. And the, the first one is... For you not to panic or worry um, or to feel this sense of frenzy about their questions, it is important for you to give them the freedom to be honest, to ask questions, to wrestle without your feeling the need to answer them. Sometimes they just need to get it out of their their heads, um, out of their minds, so um and I think that begins to diffuse the strength of all those um, those bats in our brains, you know, that can get in there. Giving them the freedom to be honest is a gift. Um, another thing that you can do is you be Jesus with skin on to them. You be Christ to them. Um, and that means that you do need to be close to God, um, to spend time in the Word, for you to know Him so that, that, that the natural effect would be that your relationship with Him will spill over to them. It's not that you need to preach with your words or to be an apologist for the faith. You need to live it, and that means you need to know God intimately. Um, and then the last thing is really a foregone conclu conclusion. You know it. I know it. We need to pray. Pray is an effectual connection to God. It moves mountain. There are so many verses in Scripture that, that um, describe what prayer can do for us. But 
if we believe what we profess, if we believe and hold fast to the things that Scripture tells us, then how are we not praying with um, an immediacy and with a desperation for the people in our lives who are struggling? I have those wanderers in my life, too. I am having to walk this out in real time with people I love, too, while I share the message of this book. And these are convictions that are falling right into my lap, too. So I'm walking it with you, sister. You know, I am I am here feeling all the feels and grieving the loss that you see in their lives and wanting it so bad for them. That The best thing is that God wants this, too. He desires this for the wanderers, too. And Jesus, Scripture tells us that Jesus is at the right hand interceding for these people as well. He wants his brothers and his sisters and his daughters and his sons to be back in favor and relationship and to know him. I just, I wrote down my, my points. Um, the hardest, my listeners know that the hardest one of those for me is going to be that I don't talk as much. <laughs> they they all know that. Like they're going to be like, yeah, that's going to be really hard for Carmen. But I um I am I've written them down. I'm putting them in my journal. I am going to um follow your counsel and I'm also going to walk with a couple of them through the book. So the book is for all who wander. It has a journey guide as well. Um and let me also invite you to check out what Robin is doing online. Robin Dance. That's with a d. robindance.me. Robin, thank you so much for joining us today on Mornings with Carmen. I am. What a pleasure. What a pleasure. All right, friends, we'll be right back. Okay, do you think Robin Dance would feel like, you know, stalked if I sent her a little text message and say, I really want to know you like in real life? Why? Well, that's just it. I, are you not overtaken by when we have conversations with people here on air and you think to yourself, I really, I am so pleased. I am so, I just want to celebrate. God has so many precious people in so many places doing so many extraordinary things. Um, and we've talked to some of them today. So I'm thankful today for Josh Good and what he's doing in D.C. And I'm thankful for uh, Hunter Baker and what he's doing in Middle Tennessee and for uh, Bill English and what he's doing in the Twin Cities and Robin Dance, what she's doing in, in Georgia and around the world um, uh, through her through her writing. Um, I'm, I'm thankful for you as well. This is such a great pleasure to walk the walk of faith with one another, um, to explore not only the headline news of the day and bring the mind of Christ to bear, but to really encourage and edify one another. So, you know, what are you reading that's of encouragement to you? Who do you think I should be talking to in the new year? Um, what What ministries are out there on the on the front edge of really transformative ministry in your community, let me know. I'd love to hear about those things um, so that we can then share them with others. You can always text me, 877-933-2484, or you can email me. Sometimes that's more effective because you can write more there. Um, you can email me, Carmen at MyFaithRadio.com. Um, let me know where you are in the Word, and let me know how God is using you and others in the world that he so loves. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. 
That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.